Um, all right, so Advent, it does start uh, today, officially, worldwide. Churches around the world are celebrating uh, Christmas starting this Sunday. And uh, as far as sermon series go on Advent, uh, you've got the go-tos. Uh, you've got uh, Matthew and Luke both have uh, the nativity scene in them. Mark doesn't have Jesus' uh, birth or his childhood anywhere in his gospel. And then you have John. Uh, John chapter 1 is this high and lofty, exalted uh, Jesus was really focused on his divine nature. That's John. So we could do Matthew, you could do Luke, could do John. Or you could do the Old Testament. You could go to some of the prophecies, like the one we read earlier in Isaiah chapter 11. Those are kind of the go-tos. And, uh, but as I was just thinking about what, what is it, uh, you know, part of preaching is what sounds fun to me. <laughs> it's kind of like parenting. Like, uh, if, if you want to be a good parent, do the things that you think are fun, and then your kids will think they're fun. It doesn't work every time, but a lot of times. Well, that's totally when it comes to preaching. That's why I like to preach through books, uh, so I don't have to make these decisions very often. You just pick a book, and you just plow through it. Well, uh, this year for Advent, what sounded fun to me was really to zone in on the person of Jesus. If you were to take a characteristic of God, and what would that look like in a real person? That's Jesus. And that's what the incarnation really is all about. So we're going to zone in really on the person uh, of Jesus as opposed to his work, you know, his cross and his resurrection. So that's where we're headed the next five weeks. And uh, we're going to start this week with Hebrews chapter 1. And we kind of started last week. I was flirting with starting Advent a week earlier by kind of setting this whole thing up. You've got two of Jesus' disciples, Cleopas and, uh, and, and an unnamed uh, disciple, and they have left Jerusalem after Jesus' death. They're heading uh, presumably to their hometown in Emmaus, seven miles away, probably like a two-hour walk, and they're really sad because they're, uh, the one that they have pledged their allegiance to, Jesus, that he has died. And as they're walking along, talking about what's been going on with his arrest and uh, his, uh, his suffering, his crucifixion, a man comes alongside them, a third person, and they don't recognize this person. And that person ends up telling them from the scriptures why it is that Jesus had to suffer. And they're, 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 they're illumined by what they get from their third new friend. So they invite this friend to come back to their house in Emmaus, and in Emmaus, uh, he breaks the bread, and all of a sudden it dawns on them, oh, our new friend's Jesus. And, it, they, they, and Jesus leaves the room, kind of poofs uh, out, and they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while we were learning from the scriptures on why Jesus had to suffer? So Cleopas and his friend, they had these gaps that needed to be filled in, to be filled in by the scriptures. That's what I'm hoping for from us, is that Jesus would come alongside us, that he would open up the scriptures, and these gaps that we have in who Jesus is, that they would get filled in. Not just so that we might have a full understanding, but that we, just like Cleopas and his friend, that our hearts might burn within us these next few weeks. Uh, so let me uh, pray and we'll read Hebrews 1. Uh, Father, we do pray. Uh, would you make our hearts burn? Uh, Lord, would your spirit come and uh, make this more than just a lesson, uh, a sermon, uh, to get a few thoughts from a, the good book? Um, but Lord, that we really would get food for our souls. Uh, that we would leave with much more than just kind of cognitive stimulation. But, Lord, we would uh, leave being transformed and more into your image. Do this among us these next few minutes. Amen. 
All right, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. Uh, Spoiler alert, um, I was born in 1981. February the 13th, I've got a couple months left in my 30s, and then the big 40 happens. I was hoping for a huge bash of a birthday party this year. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but 1981, a few things were going on. One, Reagan was president. Uh, two, uh, the interest rate, the prime interest rate in 1981 was as high as it's ever been, 20%. Now, some of us might not make it any sense. Well, today it's 3 uh, more importantly, what was going on in 1981 is that Atari and Nintendo were just gearing up. Uh, Mario Brothers, Zelda, they came out in 85. Tecmo Bowl came out, the, best, bad, the baddest bad football game in history, came out in 87. And my parents were, let's just say, a little on the conservative side. And we weren't allowed to have video games at my house. So you better believe that my best friends at school were all kids who had a Nintendo. So I'd go to their house and I would play video games. I loved them. And those games, Zelda, Mario Brothers, Tecmo Bowl, those are the prototypes. And I loved playing them. But little did I know that these grainy, blocky figures displayed on a massively thick, low-resolution television would evolve into what they are today. I couldn't in my wildest eight-year-old imagination envision video games the way that we played them in 2020. Now, if you were to look at sports video games, they look just like the real athletes, and they move just like that athlete actually moves. The growth is extraordinary. The old really has been superseded in every way imaginable. But you can see a progression. I mean, it's not like Mario Brothers isn't fun anymore. We still play it at my house. It's not like Tecmo Bowl and Madden are totally different. Because what you have, you still have this live interaction with a screen using an interface. Because at base, that's what a video game is. But at base, who is God? Who is God? Well, we Presbyterians, we have this confession of faith we call the Westminster. And one of the parts of the Westminster is the shorter catechism. Catechism just means a way of teaching, and it's just in this question-answer response. And the third question is, who is God? Here's what our confession says. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So there you have it. God's a spirit. But how are we, as human beings, supposed to understand that he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth, 
when he's a spirit? How are we supposed to see that? That's a great question. And if you start looking at the Old Testament, you'll see the various ways. You saw that in verse 1 of Hebrews, chapter 1. These various ways. What are the various ways that we understand who God is in the Old Testament? There's a few. One is we see it in his commands. Think about the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. What that tells us about God is that he values faithfulness. He says obey your parents so that we know that God values authority. He says do not murder so we know that God values life. So you begin to get some glimpses of what God is like by the kinds of commands that he gives us. We also begin to see what God's life, what he's like by how he interacts with other people. Well, Adam and Eve, the way you understand who God is, you begin to understand him as creator because that's who he is in that story. In the story of Abraham, you see that God wants to redeem a people for himself. You see it in the story, you see it in the commands. You see it in these visions and dreams. Daniel has a vision in the book of Daniel where there's a lot of conflict, and God in the, in the end triumphs. You see these, uh, dr- this dream that Jacob has where there's a ladder that connects heaven with earth because God wants to dwell with his people. So you begin to see what God's like in these dreams and these visions. And, You see it in his mighty acts. He's powerful as he parts the Red Sea. But the ones that are kind of most mysterious, the ones that kind of get me and make me ask all kinds of questions are these things called theophanies. A theophany is just an appearance of God where he visibly displays himself to other people. You know how he does this. He he did this in the burning bush. Reveals himself to Moses. He did this again with Moses when he with his hand, kept Moses in the cleft of a, of a rock, and Moses could only see his back. Ugh. You see that God is present in the cloud in the desert as they journey between the Red Sea and the Promised Land. But all of these things pale in comparison to what we see in Jesus. When you're looking at all those lists that I just made, you're looking at these blocky, grainy, blurry, fragmented pictures of what God's like. It's like the Mario Brothers. It's incomplete. It's real. It's helpful. We need it. It's beneficial. But it needs a climax, and boy, do we get it in Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us in the second half of verse 2 and then in chapter, and then in verse 3. You see it? He gives these seven affirmations. So let's walk through these seven affirmations together. The first affirmation is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Now, I don't know what your family situation has been. I don't know if you've seen conflict happen when you have a deceased loved one and your family dies. But almost always there's intense conflict. And almost always there's intense conflict because there are limited assets... And there are greedy people. But what happens if you're dealing with this whole thing of inheritances and you have someone who's infinitely wealthy, doesn't have limited assets, and you have someone who's infinitely generous, doesn't want to keep any for themselves? Well, that's what we have in God, and that's what he does with Jesus. He's an heir of all things. Doesn't get split up with nobody. Second affirmation you see is that through whom he made the universe. 
you ever think about that? Jesus is creator? I think most of us tend to think, well, Jesus showed up in a manger. No, 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 that's, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's happening here in Hebrews 1. We see Jesus creator in John 1. You see Jesus creator in 1 Corinthians 8. You see Jesus creator in Colossians 1. And I don't know if I'd ever heard this in my whole life, growing up all those years in church until I got to college. And when I got to college, it blew my mind. Because I saw that Jesus stands as the end of the future, and he also stands as the beginning of the past. He created all things. That was the second affirmation. Then the third and fourth affirmations. You see them there? Radiance of God's glory, number three. Number four, exact representation of his being. You see these two that kind of strike at a similar thing. And the similar thing that it's striking at is that Jesus mirrors the Father. Just like it's, if you look at a light, it's, it's hard to distinguish the brightness coming from the light from the light bulb itself. Same with the Father and the Son. And then you have this exact representation of his being. That word exact representation is a Greek word, the original language of the New Testament. It's only used once, and it's the word character. That's the Greek word, character. And it's only used in the New Testament that one time, but it's used in a lot of other places in literature of the day. And it's usually used to talk about the seal, the metal seal that's dipped into wax that's then put to seal a letter or to seal an envelope. You put it on the scene to seal it up. Well, on that metal image, that metal seal, you would have a picture of the person, usually the government leader, on it. And what it's trying to say is that when you, when you looked at the wax after you put the stamp in it, you look at the stamp itself, there's a, there's a similarity. Same's true with Jesus. Now, sure, they're distinct, but they've got more similarities between the two of them than you can count. Those are the first four. Number five, you see the fifth one. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sustaining all things. Now, we did talk about creating all things. And can you imagine being there at creation? Can you imagine to see light burst forth? Can you imagine seeing birds fly around the corner? Can you imagine mountains emerge out of the abyss? It would be stunning. Now imagine that Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts up the hood and he shows you how he is sustaining the world in the here and now. You get to see how he's chemically keeping everything in balance in the human body. You get to see how he's keeping mass chaos from coming forth all over the world. You get to see how he's infusing hope into those who are on the verge of giving up. Wouldn't it be amazing to see him sustaining all things by the power of his word? You have these back row tickets to see reality. It'd be marvelous. But that's what Jesus is up to in the world right now. Number six, you see purification for sins. Now, just imagine all the things that we just said, right? Those first five things. You're, we're dealing with someone who created the world, who sustains it by the power of his word, whose essential nature is the same as the Father's, and who's the heir of all things. If that's who you think you're dealing with, and that's who we are dealing with, you would think that he's got no time for little old me and little old you. You would also expect that he'd have no time. He'd be unable to get involved with the sinister, 
ugly parts of who we are. Yet that's what the import of this sixth affirmation really is. The same person who created the world is the person who makes purification for all things. And the seventh one, he's at God's right hand, and that's where Jesus is. He's in the place of ultimate honor. All right, so add all those things up. All those seven affirmations, add them up. And when you add them up, you get that statement in verse 4, that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, when I think of angels, I think of these naked, chubby little things. But that's not angels in the Bible. If you looked at the hundred instances of angel in the Bible, you would have, more often than not, when people face angels, their face face tear and they end up on the ground. So it's no small thing for Jesus to be called superior to the angels. But Jesus does. He's got a higher status. He's got a place of higher prominence. He has a higher rank. He's preferable. And he's just plain better than any other office or institution that we find in the scriptures. And that's the whole message of Hebrews. The author is going to great lengths to show us how Jesus is superior than all of our other options. And that word superior comes up in other places. We saw it in verse 1. Jesus is superior to prophets. We saw it in verse 4. He's superior to angels. You see it three times in chapters 7 and 8 to say that he's superior to priests. In chapter 9, you see that Jesus is superior to the blood sacrifices. Now, all of these institutions, all of these offices have their place. But they've been eclipsed. And if you want to continue to rely on them, you're going to find out that they're woefully inadequate. At this juncture, you might say, Marsh, I don't know if you really know where I'm coming from, but I don't really give a rip about prophets. I don't even know a prophet. Angels seem kind of weird. Priests ain't got one. If I wanted one, I'd go to a Catholic church or Episcopal church. And I'm definitely not into blood sacrifices. So you don't have to worry about me over here. I'm already on board with Jesus superior to all those. Okay? But I don't think that leaves us off the hook. See, remember this timeline that we're working with here. Remember we started out at the beginning of service, talked about creation. And over here we talked about the consummation of all things, the end. All right? It's like there's a light shining from the end. And it hits Jesus in his incarnation, his life and ministry on earth. And when it hits Jesus' life and ministry on earth, it casts shadows that we begin to see some of what Jesus is like when we see the priest, when we see the prophet, when we see the angel, when we see the blood sacrifices. That's the shadow. But here's the shadow caster, Jesus. Then down here, you've got the, sh- you've got the light shining back this way. And it hits Jesus and it sends some shadows in our here and now. Yeah, you might not have those things, but we have these other symbols by which we're supposed to interpret some of who Jesus is. One is in Christian leaders. I think for some of us, this is a real tough one. I wish I wasn't one. I just wish the New Testament was this flat society without leaders. There were, there were, there was, it was a body without any rank. But what we find in the New Testament is that he calls some to pastors, some to elders, some to deacon. 
For some of us, that's really tough to handle. We, 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 we really want this flat society, and we, we would never put more trust in a Christian leader, in a pastor, in a deacon, in an elder than we would Jesus himself. But for others of us, we do choose our leaders over Jesus. And it's a good thing to have healthy Christian leaders in our lives, but sometimes we cross into the dark side of it and we choose the shadow or the shadow caster. We'd rather our leaders tell us what to do than to wrestle with Jesus himself. Well, maybe another person that you might put all your weight on. It's not a prophet, it's not a priest, it's not an angel, it's not blood sacrifice, but maybe it's a spouse. I mean, I mean, after all, you've got biblical passages in the Old and New Testament that talk about a Jesus or God himself being the groom. And God's people, the church, being his bride. That there's this covenantal relationship between Christ and the church. And it casts a shadow into a marriage between a husband and a wife. You can see why. There's the same elements of love and mutuality and faithfulness that's bound up in Christ and the church in a husband and wife relationship. But it's just a shadow. But again... We treat it as more than a shadow when we have such a desire for faithfulness and love in our marriage that we put so much pressure on ourselves and on our spouse for something to be more perfect than it's actually supposed to be. It's just a shadow. It's not the shadow caster. Or maybe it's parents. Now, maybe some of you, you're like, you're saying like, man, I love my Thanksgiving because it was the first one I didn't have to see my parents. I could just tell them I was afraid they were going to get sick. But for others of us, we, we, view, we view our parents very differently. Maybe you had fairly good parents. They kind of strike the balance. You see a balance in the, in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6 calls fathers, do not provoke your children. And provoking your children, you're more or less, you're over-parenting them. You're micromanaging them. You make decisions for them. You wrap them in bubble wrap to keep them from getting hurt. And if that's how you parent you will inevitably provoke your children to anger. That's kind of one extreme. There's another extreme. Proverbs 13, 24 says that parents are to be diligent in their discipline. Well, for others of us, diligently disciplining our kids is really hard. We would never micromanage them, but we have a hard time keeping a firm line on what God expects from them. And in the end, they end up bringing shame on themselves. That's Proverbs 13, 24. So if you had parents that didn't overparent you and didn't underparent you, but they struck this balance, then you will be tempted to give your parents more affection than you give Jesus. You end up idolizing them. You end up crediting your parents for all the good that's in you when that's simply just not true. See, do you see it? Do you see how Jesus is superior to your pastor? Your pastor can't purify you from sin. Do you see how Jesus is superior to your spouse, your real spouse or your imagined one? Your spouse cannot be the radiance of God's glory and cannot be the exact imprint of the Father, no matter how much you pray or how much you nag. Do you see how Jesus is superior to your parents? Your parents might have been great. Your parent might have been great. They may have sacrificed a ton to you, for you. But let's face it, they didn't create the world. 
They didn't sustain it by the power of their word. So you see, Christian leaders, your spouse, your parents, they serve a purpose, but now they've been eclipsed. And if you want to continue to rely upon them, you're going to be disappointed because they're not going to be able to carry the weight that you place on them. But there is someone who can carry the weight. It's Jesus. Just look at those seven affirmations. God's given you a really sturdy foundation upon which to place your life. That's the revelation he's giving. But we often don't work with the revelation that Jesus has given us. Usually we begin to build a foundation of who Jesus is from the bottom up. We begin with our opinions of who God is. And when you do that, you aren't going to come up with those seven affirmations. When you begin to come up with a conception of God based on your own opinions, you're likely going to come up with someone who's just a little bit better than you. But when you work from the top down, when you let God who's over you, above you, beyond you, and outside of you tell you who he is, you're going to come up with a really crazy idea. And it's more than an idea, it's a person. The person's Jesus because he came down to you. Everything in you wants to get to Jesus, but everything in the scripture says that Jesus is the one who came to you. And he does so because he loved you. And because he loved you, he found a way to squish all of who the Father is into him. Because he loves you, he found a way to be the creator while inhabiting the creative. Because he loved you, he found a way to sustain the world by the power of his word, all while living in it. Because he loves you, he found a way to purify you from your sin, though he had none of his own. See, it'll blow your mind. Jesus has moved heaven and earth to be with you, and his love for you is not an abstract idea. It's concrete, and it's his person, and his name is Jesus. So will you come to him tonight? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our very small ideas about who you are. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would allow you uh, to inform us about what you're like because your revelation of what you're like really um, is far more grand and really does, uh, will really blow our minds and really will cause our hearts to burn. Oh Lord, would you uh, do this through your spirit?